Alright everyone, let's call a timeout. This podcast is proudly sponsored by the Medical Indemnity Protection Society, the indemnity partner of four out of five healthcare students. It's free to become a student member. For more information regarding MIPS student membership, please visit qr.mips.com.au. Hi everybody, welcome to the timeout. My name's Ganisht and I'm joined today by Associate Professor Warwick Teague, Director of Trauma Service and Clinical Lead of the Burn Service in the Department of Pediatric Surgery at the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne, as well as being actively involved in research, being the co-group leader over there. He's a very proud dad of three, and we'll also find out today the thrilling story of how he was also once held at gunpoint in Central Europe. Welcome to the show, Warwick, and thanks for being here. Thanks, Ganesh, it's great to chat. Let's start with your specialty. Can you tell us a little bit more about it? What do you do exactly? Ganesh, I have the best job in the world. I'm a paediatric surgeon and I get to apply my craft as a surgeon uh, to children in need, caring for families in need. And I sincerely do think that I have the best job in the world. Paediatric surgery is a wonderful craft. It's not for everyone, but it certainly has been for me for a long time. I fell in love with this specialty as a medical student. Um, and haven't wavered from that affection ever since. Yeah, something that we have heard you mention a few times in the past. Um, And as part of your portfolio, we see that you're involved with trauma, burns, and general surgery. Um, Do you think that captures the whole gamut of things that we can find you doing in surgery? Yeah, together with um, a shared delight that many paediatric surgeons would reflect to you, and that is the neonatal surgery. But all of these areas, whether it's systems that support the care of the severely injured child to the the fineries of a burns graft to the um, very particular nature of neonatal surgery, a care and exact uh, attention to detail is at the heart of all of those and is a common thread to many paediatric surgeons as to what attracts them to this, together with the paediatric nature of our patient group. So yeah, that sort of nicely summarizes that I feel there's a bit of art, a bit of craft, and a lot of uh, coloring in and pencils. So excellent. Now we'll move on to some of those warm-up questions that I think we might have some fun with. To start with, Warwick, dogs or cats? Dogs. Dogs. Do you have any dogs yourself at the moment? Uh, not at the moment. As a child, we had a dog called Brecken, who was much loved, and uh, he was a golden retriever. And then my sister's dog stayed with us for a while, and that was Sasha. Sasha was a Belgian retreat, a Belgian, um, an Alsatian, basically. And uh, Sasha once jumped over my shoulder to take out the thief that was trying to enter the house uh, while I was trying to close the door. Needless to say, that thief never came back. And uh, Sasha had been a very, very tame Alsatian up until that moment, but demonstrated in in Inspector Rex style very clearly that... uh, she could understand that we were in threat. And she jumped over my shoulder uh, to shirt front the thief uh, trying to enter the house. Remarkable. Your truly loyal companion there. What's your favourite sport to follow? If you watch any football, do you have a footy team? 
Uh, sadly, I'm an Adelaide Crows supporter, which means that I don't have many happy days, although we are presently the only team to have defeated the Melbourne Football Club in this, uh, in this year. And that may be the only win that we have for a long time, but we'll, we'll savour it. We'll savour it well. Yeah, well, something to make you happy there. What's your favourite kids cartoon to quote with children who you see? Oh, that's hard because you've got to change it according to the child. But yeah. I did for a long time milk as much out of Octonauts as I possibly could. When my own children were in that phase, they loved Octonauts and I became very, very proficient with all the characters. And, and I just enjoyed to watch a fair few episodes of Octonauts as well. But who knows? Nowadays it's bluey, but I've only seen one episode. It was cracking, but uh, I've only seen the one. So I can't quite carry it through with the uh, authenticity that I used to have with Octonauts. Yeah, but undeniably um, very important skill to have. <laughs> um, now, do you listen to music in the operating, operating theatre or not? Yes, or as much as possible. We always have a bit of banter as to what's going to be played. I have a very eclectic range of music interests, um, everything from folk to hip hop to relatively hardcore rap. And lots of things in between. So, uh, yeah, Mumford and Sons was on often on on repeat. Yeah. But essentially, it has to have a pace about it. What I don't want is slow, lulling music because then everyone just slows down the operating theatre. If it's got a bit of banjo, a bit of beat to it, then yeah. I find that everyone follows suit. And you've got to have fun. You've got to you've got to enjoy what you're doing because we do enjoy what we're doing. So yeah. why not play some good music while it's there? Yeah, and having been in operating theatre with you, I can clearly confirm that you're someone who has fun and is able to transmit that fun to the people around you. Whilst uh, also knowing how to keep it serious when the matter when the matter arises, yeah. Absolutely, it's something we should touch on while we interview a surgeon. Um, so Warwick, what does a typical day in your life look like, at least these days? Typical days are split between some days with a strong academic focus at the beginning of the week. Uh, still keen to catch up with patients if they're in, to make sure that families and children know that I'm responsible for the care of their of, of the of the child or the of the family through the child. But at the tail end of the week, um, strong clinical activity focus with perhaps on Thursday, the whole day is spent in theatre. Um, good times with good people, Friday clinics. Um, and on Wednesdays, I split my time between Burns Clinic and departmental meetings of various kinds. Um, so a real, a real mix of academic and clinical, but most days involve some touching base with the patient group. There are days that will go without that altogether if I have a small number of patients or, or no one with acute issues going on. But um, I never want to stray too far from the coalface. Hmm. And um, is there anything that takes your mind off um, the hustle and bustle of surgery? Anything you like to do in your spare time? Yeah, well, I, a few years ago, I went on a on a, a walk in the Papua New Guinean Highlands, the Kokoda Trail, and then to get myself ready for that, I started to walk to work rather than previously I'd ridden or occasionally catching the tram or the or, or just driving. And I found that my mental health improved enormously with the six or so kilometre walk in, into work and then back home that evening. So I love to decompress at either end of my day um, with a walk. Um, sometimes I, I jog, other times I mix it up a little bit and go longer just to give myself more 
more chance. But uh, on the tail end of the day, you have to realize that uh, if I don't get home, my wife is dealing with the responsibility of the three boys all by herself. And that's not entirely fair. So I have to balance that against getting home on time. But uh, decompress from a busy day of surgery and sometimes just think through what's happened and why. For me, a walk or a jog at that stage is just a perfect tonic. And um, while you do walk, do you listen to anything? So I listen to, well, I don't know if I could recommend it, but I listen to, what do I listen to? I listen to uh, BBC Global News because I like to keep abreast of what's happening in the world, not so much in my backyard, but what's happening all over the world. I think the BBC World Service is good for that. I listen to uh, some comedy. Uh, BBC Friday Night Comedy is a, is a, is a regular uh, joy. I also listen to Economist Radio. Um, so I like to uh, just broaden my horizons. I think politics and economics and these things are fascinating, but I never really had a chance to, to dwell on that for quite a few years. And I'm returning to a previous love there. Um, I'm a person of faith and I listen to my Bible on the way in sometimes and just enjoy the chance to, to just think about matters of life and faith and love and all those sorts of things that come into it. So I get quite lost in my thoughts. When I'm running, I mostly just think about surviving to the end of the run. But uh, that's, there's something very pleasant in the emptiness of that survival. It's called The Loneliness of the Long Distance Runner, which is a book I could recommend to many if they haven't read it. But uh, there's something nice about the emptiness that running brings to me that I just don't have to think about anything for a while. Yeah, fantastic. All right. So now let's move on to the adventure that we'll be getting to know Warwick. Tell us about your childhood. Where were you born and where did you grow up? So I was born in the highlands of Papua New Guinea, where my father was working as a surgical trainee. Back in those days, you could do surgical training in New Guinea. Um, he was a South Australian, but this was a, a partnership that had really been established with the University of Melbourne. And there was a shortfall, uh, which they made a wider call into Australia for people to fill. Um, and he had an interest in Papua New Guinea because his sister was working there as a missionary and he and his new bride, my, my mother, uh, and they're already one child and one on the way went up to New Guinea and they spent the next six years living there. My father training as a surgeon. So I was born into that context, into that environment. Um, I was surrounded, my, my first in, in experience of life was surrounded by fairly rustic village uh, life with um, New Guinean families and children um, and uh, my father and mother in the midst of that with an interesting expatriate community around them um, but uh, and that flavor of the commitment of surgery and interest in the in the world uh, in, continued my parents then moved after six years and I was three at that stage they moved to England where my father did further surgical training um, and a bit like my own children's story is very much sort of authored by, you know, surgical training, so was mine. Um, and we, we spent three years living in England before coming back to Australia. And then I've lived, I lived then throughout my rest of my childhood into my university years in South Australia. Um, but yeah, those first early days, um, Garoka in Papua New Guinea and Highlands. Yeah, beautiful. And do you remember anything from those days that you think might still influence you? I think days? I'm profoundly influenced by the, the, the social, the cultural, the ethnic milieu of that time. 
And I, I always knew that the fact that my father had had a very um, service-driven experience of surgery um, influenced me and my, my, my decisions. The fact that we lived amongst uh, people who brought their whole lives into another, another context in order to serve and to care in a way that is even more profound than many of us would have opportunity to do as, as healthcare professionals in, in urban Australia. Um, and there, there are various sort of colourful memories and defining aspects of our life, like the fact that my parents from time to time will speak in another language years ago. And when I came back after mm, something like 30, 35 years of absence from New Guinea, I was overwhelmed with a sense of belonging and a sense of um, having reached a sort of a, a home place. Um, and I hadn't really, I had actually no expectation of that. It, it wasn't something that I built up my mind. I'm going back to New Guinea. I'm going back to New Guinea. I had almost discounted that it would emotionally connect with me, but the, the sights, the smells, the people, just the whole thing um, struck me. And I realized how much this is woven into the fabric of who I am and, and how I relate. Yeah. And you also mentioned that your father was a surgeon who was training and hence you traveled with him into all of these places. So there seems to be quite the indication that you would get into medicine. Do you credit that to be a big reason of why you got into medicine? Well, getting into medicine is one thing, but being enthusiastic for medicine is a very different one. Um, <laughs> Look, from the earliest age, when I once I got over the I want to be Zorro, I want to be a fireman, I want to be a policeman, once I'd got through that, I would always tell people with complete sincerity that I wanted to be a doctor. It was, it, I just looked at my father and everything about his work, even with him being exhausted after nights of on call, which I now relate to, but at that time I just knew that daddy was grumpy, daddy was tired, whatever else. But I could see that he loved what he did and he was helping people. And so when you, when you look at what you want to do, if you're not wanting to be an AFL sports star or whatever, whatever else attracts you, well, why, why wouldn't it attract you that you could see someone really enjoying what they're doing and that sense of service? And I think that kids often pick up on a sense of service. Like my own children wanted to be, you know, SES responders and you know firemen and that that's that's the sense of giving that I think that children really like to have um, there's no doubt that those formative years played a part even the negatives so I knew exactly what it meant to be the child of a surgeon who came home late many nights I used to go to the hospital with my father in order to remain engaged as his, as his son and I used to do ward rounds with him and you might be thinking of some little child, and I was little when I used to start to do this because we lived on the hospital grounds in the UK often. Okay. So I would live on the hospital grounds. My father would come home and we would walk, you know, in some beautiful little halcyon thing with, you know, father and son hand in hand, and I would do the rounds of the hospital. I kept doing that until I was about 15 or 16. You know, I was absolutely engaged, but also I had to keep a relationship with my father who was otherwise... You know, he came home at 8.30 and he was going out to the hospital to do his rounds. So what was I to do? Was I to stay absent from his life or get involved? So, yeah, I was quite old when I stopped doing rounds with my dad. Yeah, and that's an interesting um, last point you mentioned as well of 
you try to make the most of the time and what that means for you doesn't mean the same thing for let's say a person working in a different industry at different hours um, so it's still possible to have that connection uh, with you with your parents and on the other side with your children as well and it's different now because we actually don't have a lot of permission to bring our children into hospitals and you know like like that that, that is a that is of a time so it's not as if i'm trying to reiterate that experience my own mm. you know they've probably on a small handful of times come into the hospital with me as i've tried to see you know what would that feel like and i'm not trying to recapture that that was my experience as a child mm -hmm. it was the way i reconciled the experience of being the child of a surgeon and then my children are doing their own in a different way but i definitely knew what it meant to sign up to surgery and i knew what exams felt like and i knew what the pressure of that felt like and the, you know, could see what someone looked like after two and a half days of being awake and working. And I carried that reality into the decisions I made once I got old enough to really think about it. Yeah. And a great insider perspective, it sounds like. Mm. Um, so let's talk about your medical training itself. You mentioned you had quite the journey to get into medical school. I went to the University of Adelaide. Um, the journey into medical school is just the fact that I had to work really hard. So my year eight exams, I remember sitting down to my mid-year exams in year eight because I went to a school that had exams from, you know, twice a year from year eight onwards and got to the end of that exam period and my mother and I sat there and she said to me, right, one down, nine to go. Because every exam was building up to the final exam. These were the days when medical students were chosen exclusively on academic merit. There was no alternative route of any normality. A few people came in as mature age students, but that was a very long and not particularly um, reliable route. Some people transferred across from science, whereas now the movement from science into MD programs is, whether it's biomed or science or other, other avenues, is completely mainstream. But we didn't have... The, the, the interviews and the GAM sets and stuff, it was exclusively on, on exams. And there were many limitations to that, but it, the reality was that was the hurdle. So the journey was that I was so committed to doing medical, to, to, to being a doctor that I just had to work. And I made some decisions that were exclusively related to academic performance. So I gave up football in my final year of school which was, you know, nowadays, if my son told me he was giving up sport, I would choke on whatever food I was, you know, it'd be like unimaginable. But I just said to my parents, I, I'm going to give up football because I want to focus exclusively on studying for the exams. And that was, you know, that was the way it had to be. Fortunately, it did come to fruition when you went to Adelaide. Um, can you tell us about some of the highlights you remember from those medical school days? Yeah, well, I, had a, I had a great time at medical school, really good time. I went and did a gap year between my final year of school and coming back to medical school, which means that I came back into a, a new friendship group. I, had, I knew some people from in the year above me because we had quite a number of kids from my school went into medical school each year. Um, but uh, it also opened up a completely new peer group for me, which I was thoroughly delighted with. Um, I'd been away and had ex interesting experiences in, the, in, in Europe. And so it was sort of 
there's a little bit of interest factor when you're new and you're still carrying over your your accent from when the fact you've just come back from a year speaking German. And and I I I have such good friendships from from those times, even though I quickly left Australia after medical school and my internship and spent really a formative number of years away from 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 Australia and then the vast majority of those years away from Adelaide, but I still have really dear friends. Enjoyed just being able to loosen the reins a little bit on academic expectation. Um, you didn't have to get 95% for every test all the time. Obviously we worked really hard and I still had that hangover of academic expectation that I brought to myself. But um, I just enjoyed the fact that when you got 74%, nobody actually cared. And so you just, you just got on with it. Um, and I was now doing what I loved to do. I, was, I, I knew that I'd got through that hurdle and pretty much if I just stayed the course, I was going to be safe. I, didn't, I never had a sense that I was somehow going to fall aside during the, those years. So I loved that. I got involved in university life. I got involved in university politics. I, you know, I, I, I did the whole breadth of things. I studied a language, I did an art subject just on the side because I wanted to keep my German language going. And we had a really insular, you could almost say insular experience of medical school. We, we had the same group of 120 people the whole way through. We didn't have different clinical schools that split up. And, and we all, most of us did our internship in the same hospital as well. So we, we were a really tight group come the end. And there's some good friendships there that have lasted forever. Yeah. And you do strike us as someone who, well, as you've told us, you were interested in medicine, you put in the hard yards for it. So as a medical student, take us through your mindset. What were your dreams, goals, ambitions? So my, I, I moved from, I want to be a doctor to, I want to be a surgeon. And that wasn't a given. It wasn't like, oh, my father's a surgeon, I'll be a surgeon. Early days, it was just that sort of ill-formed, nebulous concept of being a doctor. But I very quickly worked out that surgery was cool, and, and it is. You get to do cool stuff. You get to do cool stuff as a physician as well. But I just, there's no doubt I was attracted towards it. Um, and I wasn't, I, I was a sort of, I mean, I am a nerd. I'm a, I'm a nerd by character. But I, I, we had a lot of fun whilst being nerds. So um, you know, there was there was a lot of just being on the wards, and uh, just that's that can be a slightly crazy time when you sort of interact with some of the registrars. And I, you know, I don't know what kind of um, medical satire you watch, but I think that something like Scrubs just caps yes. <laughs> captures it for me. And I'm, I, you know, I am I have a I have a Doctor Cox, and I am to them their Bambi, and. I am Dr. Cox to some people and they are my Bambi. But in that time as a medical student, we just, you know, you're a part of that, that world in which the medical students were these almost comical characters that bounced in and out of wards and entertained people through foolishness or brashness or whatever else. And I, I, I really enjoyed that side of it. It's sort of like a little crazy commune of, of, of medical learning. So uh, yeah, I, I, it was a it was a really really good time. But I still deep down was a nerd, and so I was still working really hard to sort of excel. And now the excelling was not about reaching uh, an academic threshold, which would allow me an accolade or allow me uh, 
a chance to, to move to the next stage. It was all about being a doctor. So you had to know what the anatomy was because one day you were going to cut it and heaven forbid that you'd cut the wrong thing. And that shift of perspective allowed me to be probably no more engaged, but I felt a very different pressure, a pressure that was good. You know, I was, I was striving to be a good doctor rather than striving to get into something or other. Um, and that was a really nice switch for me. And I think for lots of other, I mean, that's not a unique experience. I'm sure that it's almost universal um, during medical training, but um, it was something that I really, really liked. And I was freed from all of that crap at school, which is about like, you've got big lips, you're an idiot, you're a loser. And I was just in this world where people liked me because of me, you know, like that was, that was good. You got to sort of leave a whole lot of private school shenanigans to one side. Yeah. And now you're in, in the real world where people either, you know, liked you because you were nice or didn't like you if you were being a bit ratty and, you know, you tried to do your best to be one but not the other. So it was really good fun. Really yeah. Good. And also a time where you get to decide, you know, what kind of an adult you want to be. You keep hearing it as you grow up, but then suddenly you're the, you're the adult in the room. <laughs> um, now, let's talk about, I, I love that you reference um, Scrubs in there. So let's talk about the vices and virtues of the modern day Bambi, let's say the modern day medical student. You must be encountering a few of them. Um, so what do you think we should be doing less of or more of? Yeah, really, really interesting concept to, to reflect on. Um, I think that medical students nowadays come in with a, with a higher level of maturity, which is good. That's not a bad thing, but it does bring a different edge. Sometimes that edge can, can just err on a sense of entitlement. So look, we've signed up for this thing. Where are the lecture notes? Why can't I see this lecture online? Why don't I have this? And, and that's a, it's an uncommon, but just there's a little simmering sense of entitlement that I think comes because we all signed up as medical students and just, you know, we were straight out of school. We had, you know, really little maturity to bring to the conversation. And the people who did bring, well, it wasn't maturity, but it was sort of, yeah, the, the, anyone who brought a sense of entitlement stuck out like a sore thumb. Whereas now it's just, it's just a simmering sense of entitlement. So I would encourage medical students to hold on to that, that apprenticeship joy of just being in the learning environment where sometimes you just need to just, just, just relax and just sit and watch what's going on and see how the, the, the I'm, I'm not a master, that's the wrong thing, but it's like the master and the apprentice, if you think about it that way, just sit and watch people perform their craft. You just enjoy the, the, the experience of that, the learning opportunity of that, rather than necessarily saying, yeah, but why don't I have a summary? And why, don't, why, why, why is this tute taking 35 minutes instead of 40 minutes? Or why are you answering your pager in the middle of my tutorial with you? Um, and yeah, but that, so that you could do a little less of that, but I'm not wanting you or anyone else to think that somehow I, I have some massive grudge against entitlement. <laughs> Yeah. Um, I think what what could you do um, more of? I think spend more time uh, marrying your your scholastic inquiry with your clinical exposure. So you come out of seeing a child with an inguinal hernia operation, 
and we might talk about the anatomy and then use that to drive an opportunity to look at that anatomy and learn more about it. You see a child in the ward with pyloric stenosis, you think, oh, I don't really know much about pyloric stenosis. I should go and read that up. And we used to do this as groups. And I'm sure you do the same. We'd have like a little cluster of us and we would, you know, just sort of bounce off each other and go away and learn a bit about this and come back. And, you know, even if it were turned into a little semi-competition amongst us as to, oh, did you read this? Did you read that? Um, did you get hold of, you know, this notes or that notes? And that was, that was fun, sort of the adventure of trying to learn what we were seeing. Um, and I do... Uh, I know that medical students now have a very much more structured time frame, and you're sort of here on the wards and then you're off. And I feel that the the, the teaching ward round is really hard to construct. But um, uh, that's um, so I acknowledge that, that that some of those are changed opportunities. But um, yeah, I think that more of that right. I've just been exposed to this clinical. Let me make sure I definitely read up about it. Um, so that they're just reflections, but for, for the most part, we actually, I actually really enjoy medical students and I sometimes am disappointed in myself that I don't, uh, teach them more when they're around. <laughs> so. Yeah. Um, and having spoken to the medical students you have toured being one of them myself, we do really value your, um, your engagement with us. When you talk with us, you want to convey that passion that you found and we appreciate that so much oh that's good i'm glad it comes across now before we move on to the next step of your career so what happens afterwards in terms of internship did i capture that at some point before medical school is when you went to europe right that's right yes yeah so now all of our listeners have their ears glued to this episode for the exciting story we hinted at in the beginning so tell us about being held at gunpoint so, uh, so timestamp, we're talking uh, 1993, okay, so it's 1993. So Berlin Wall came down in 1989. So a few years on from that, I get the chance to travel with my school class from Germany out into Eastern Germany. And we had the, op we had the opportunity to travel across the border from Eastern Germany into the Czech Republic and then on to Prague. That was the the journey we were going on free movement across so the, the the border guards there they're used to seeing some germans traveling across this border occasionally you know it's a few years on from when the wall came down the borders all opened up when we've been there two years earlier everything was really really sort of crazy still but now things have moved on a little bit but of course when we went across they all said oh who are you and they all say we're all germans and then oh, we've got this one Australian. So are they like, okay, Daniel come, this Australian comes. And everything at the moment is still pretty pretty casual, pretty positive. Yeah. So they say, come with us. They take my passport and I have to fill in a form. And then this, the mood starts to sour. This man looks at me, looks at my passport, looks at me and says, this, this is your passport? And I'm like, yeah, of course, my passport. Getting a little bit, that's not, an, no one wants to be asked that question. And he's looking down and he just says to me, uh, don't, don't go anywhere. There is a problem with your passport. We don't believe you are who you are, who you say you are. And if you try to leave, we will shoot you. Now, there were two issues. One was that I had written down that I was born in a country that didn't exist. Which was? Papua New Guinea. Oh, right. Yeah. Because when you grow up in the Czech Republic and you're taught 
a sort of a Soviet-style geography, mm. you're, you're actually, it would, it would now appear, and apologies to anyone out there who is checking, disagrees with me, but these border guards confidently told me that Papua New Guinea is a part of Australia, and so therefore if I knew where I was born, I would say I was born in Australia. So that was the first thing. The other thing is that they say you have spelt your name wrongly. Now, yeah. we could argue geography, but to not know how to spell your own name was a fundamental flaw in the would-be uh, fugitive or whatever I was supposed to be. And, of course, again, I know how to spell my name, right? And it wasn't the Warwick bit. Like, Warwick is the hard bit in my yeah. name. Everything else is easy, right? Well, Teague is a bit crazy. But Jonathan, which is my middle name, that should be okay. Right. Now, of course, I know how to spell my name. So when my passport application was filled out, but when little Mr. or Mrs. Passport person is typing it in, yeah. they have typed in Jonathan and no one has picked this up. They didn't pick it up. I didn't pick it up. You look at your passport, Warwick Teague, clearly your brain doesn't say, look in the middle name. Yeah. So when I all these. No one had picked this up until this moment. <laughs> Right, so broken English, don't move, we'll shoot you. You can't spell your own name. I am freaking out at this situation because I fully believe them that they're going to shoot me. And yeah. it was just scary as. Eventually that teacher came in, we sorted it all out. He was like, no, this is a student who's been with us. He's been living with his family for months. He is Warwick Teague. They eventually got onto some consulate or some somewhere. It took hours. This was supposed to be a five-minute stop at the border, and it took hours to, to, to resolve this. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like I've got definite tachycardia talking to it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I can see. The adrenaline in me was just so massive at the time. But for what it's worth, I got held up at gunpoint on the Czech border because my passport was considered to be false. Yeah, harrowing experience. But I have to say not, not many of us have the experience of being an international fugitive. Well, that's, yeah, I wouldn't recommend it to anybody. <laughs> yeah. Um, what you did do in terms of international as well was move on, travel to different countries, as you were telling us earlier. So now if we come back to your early career, Warwick, yeah. um, you were telling us about how you spent some time in England before then making the move back down under to Adelaide, Hobart, and now Melbourne. So yep. let's break that down. Tell us about your journey in your own words. What did you do after medical school? So I went to do my internship in the sort of the out uh, in the main hospital for my medical school, which is the Royal Adelaide, Royal Adelaide Hospital. Um, there were other hospitals in Adelaide and they were really good. And But my brother had been to one of them and I really didn't want to sort of follow too much in his wake yeah. or footsteps. Um, so, and I had this great group of friends who we all wanted to be together at the Royal Adelaide. So um, that's where I did that. But all of that time and really for most of my internship and even in my final year of medicine, I was really, really enthusiastic about doing some kind of research at some stage. And in my gap year, I'd been to the UK and I'd gone to sort of classical university towns and I just loved this environment of learning. I just, I mean, I'm looking at your background now and it's sort of, it's the same kind of thing. You know, like you walk around Oxford, you walk around Cambridge and you just think, this is a cool place. You yeah. just got to come here and learn because 
this is where the good stuff happens. Now, there's a lot of naivety in that statement. I, I absolutely acknowledge that. You can go to any manner of places. They don't have to look good. But there was something that deeply sort of connecting for me of being in those places. So I started to build this idea that I would um, find a way to get to something like that. And at the in, during my internship, in fact, almost it was um, it was almost the sort of week I got married. I put an application in to have a PhD uh, in Edinburgh, and I was going to go and do a PhD in Edinburgh. And they had said that's fine because we'll uh, we've got some funding which we can allocate to you, and um, you just come and the academic year starts in. October, November for the UK. Mm. So um, I was going to have to find something to do for six months, but otherwise I would then go up to Edinburgh and Kirsty and I, newly married, would then spend these years living in Edinburgh while I did a PhD. And I'd given up my um, place in surgical training, in basic surgical training in South Australia, it had quite happily deferred it instead okay. of going to go away and do my PhD and then um, come back or even maybe consider doing basic surgical training in the UK. And um, that was, you know, the, the final year of, um, you know, internship went really positively. And Kirsty and I then moved to the UK with that plan. Go do a PhD, come back. For the first six months of that time, because I had to fill in that gap, I actually got a job working in paediatric surgery as a, as a resident, it's called a SHO in the UK, mm. Senior House Officer in paediatric surgery in Bristol. It was awesome. Everything that I thought I loved about pediatric surgery, I did, and yeah. I loved it more. I just thought this is absolutely brilliant. But that positivity was slightly challenged by the fact that when we were already there, we've already moved to the UK, we're living in hospital accommodation, which is interesting, but not particularly salubrious. I get this awkward phone call from, from Edinburgh to say, oh, by the way, we've just worked out you're Australian. And I'm like, well... That was should have been obvious from my accent, my CV, my university transcript, uh, my passport, everything else that I'd already given them. Yeah. And they said, yeah, well, we did know that. But the funding, the Wellcome Trust that fund us right. have rules that say you can only fund PhD projects for UK and European applicants. And when all of that, all of those have been exhausted, then we'll fund any, any external candidates, which is another way of saying we don't fund people mm. outside of the EEC. Yeah. They said, uh, we can't fund your PhD. So you might have to try and find alternative funding, which I couldn't, I wasn't successful in getting any. So there we are. We're in Bristol where we've left Australia, the two of us. We're trying to do this interesting life thing as a young married couple. Yeah. Don't want to just turn around. And so... I applied for a job in Oxford to get onto basic surgical training in Oxford. Now, there is an interesting story, which is way too boring for your podcast, but it almost didn't happen. And then it did happen. And I got the job. And in my interview, um, they asked me to rank all the jobs that I was with. There were about 12 jobs on offer. There was yeah. a lot of people being interviewed. And they said, you know, Dr. Teague, you've interviewed well, but what's most interesting about you is that you have ranked all of the jobs from one to 12, whereas most other people have only ranked maybe one or two or possibly three jobs. Yeah. And I said, oh, well, I'm an Australian living in the UK who have dragged my wife across here to start a new life. 
And so I'll take any job that you offer me. There's no doubt that I want the job with pediatric surgery in it. That's why yeah. that's number one. But I will do any of the jobs that you have on offer because I desperately need a job. And I think I can enjoy and be a good doctor in any of them. And to a person, they all looked at their but gave a tick. Yeah. <laughs> I think sincerity, honesty, don't need to be overly sort of effusive about passion, but just let it speak for you. And people like that. So I did get my first rank job, which was the basic surgical training um, rotation with pediatric surgery in it. Again, fell in love with that. Did all sorts of really interesting and crazy jobs. Worked one job, which for three months, we worked 25 hours on, 23 hours off, 12 hours on, 12 hours off, 25 hours on, 23 hours off, 12 hours Right, yeah. Just for three months. We, we came out of that like, like people come out of a war or out of boarding school, you know, just knitted to each other, um, you know, as, as a group of young doctors. And over that time, I endeared myself helpfully to Oxford clinicians who were involved in research. And that led okay. to a scholarship, which led to a PhD in development of biology as it relates to surgery, but within the University of Oxford. So I came out of basic surgical training and then worked a job where I was a research registrar, which meant I had some clinical on-call commitments, but was largely day-to-day um, -day in a laboratory um, investigating the developmental biology of the pancreas using chick embryos of all things. Yeah. So then for the for three, th that was the first three years of the clinical. And for the next three years, I did um uh, basic science research with some clinical work along alongside uh, to complete my PhD at the University of Oxford. Right. Got involved in you know university life and um, tutored, so I got to you know sort of see from the teaching um, side of it as well as the um, the student side of it. Uh, had two of my children during those years in Oxford. We lived in a beautiful home in the country. In a, in a in a not particularly quaint but still very very nice village called Horton Cum Studley, of all <laughs> um, just in loved Oxfordshire life. Still have many many dear friends over there, um, and uh, and that was a great great time. Again, really hard to do these days because of various registration constraints, and I could bring all of my basic surgical training back to Australia and have that counted towards basic surgical training here. I think that is really hard to do now. In fact, I probably think there are rules that actively make it difficult. Yeah. In those days, there was permission and I had kept all the paperwork to show that I had a track record of people saying, yes, you can do this if you pass these exams, whatever else. I'd done all my exams in the UK. So whilst that was a wonderfully positive experience, I think it is really hard for other people to walk that route. Yeah. But, um, and then that led back to advanced surgical training. So surgical training used to be split up into really distinct blocks of basic surgical training where you did a whole lot of different specialties, orthopedics, general surgery, ICU, ED, ENT, various other specialties. And then you would then choose to take that basic exposure to surgery and then apply yourself to a specialty. Yeah. That is far more truncated and sort of fluid these days, much more into a sort of a North American model. So, um, so then I applied for advanced surgical training in my last year of my PhD 
and came back and started pediatric surgery training, albeit with the first year being an adult year in Hobart, which was standard for us to do one or two years of adult training before we progressed into pediatric surgery at that stage. Yeah. Okay. A, a wild journey that took you to all these places and um, undeniably would have equipped you with so many skills as well. Um, something else you mentioned, Warwick, was at some point you had your two kids from what you said, and you were traveling around with Kirsty. So what were the things that were driving your decision-making in terms of starting and balancing a family as well as your career, which is something well, that a lot of people want to hear about. If Kirsty were behind me, she would have slapped me when you said the word balance, because in those <laughs> days, I quite definitely did not have balance. And I still don't. I really struggle with that. Work-life balance, I really struggle with because work is mm. my life and life is my work. And how do you balance one against the other when they start to feel very much similar? But I am learning that actually work is not my life and my life is not my work. I am learning that there are important distinctions to be made there. But in those days, we had really punishing work schedules. So you heard me talk about 25 hours on, 23 hours yeah. off, 12 hours on, 12 hours off. And that just repeated, that cycle every four days repeated. And we actually had a pact, the four of us that did that job together, we had a pact that no one would take leave. And if anyone was sick enough that they had to be hospitalised, essentially that was where it came down. <laughs> yeah. Because we just knew that if anyone went on leave, there was no backfill, there was, there was nothing. It was just that would just become a quicker cycle. So that, that's very hard to have balance when you have those sorts of demands on you. And for really good reasons, those demands of that kind of work schedule, uh, if it is present still in Australasia, it's increasingly being whittled out because that's a bad thing to do to people. Yeah. I was also, as you've seen, completely one track committed to surgery. And as much as I was no longer trying to aspire to be the A-grade student, I wanted to be the best surgical registrar and the best surgical resident that I could be, which meant that I did go the extra mile and I did stay late and I did say yes to jobs, which, you know, they'd say, oh, can anyone do an extra shift? And I would be the yes man. And I think that if I had my time again, I would do less of that. Mm -hmm. Not because I'm any less committed to it, but I'm not sure that the dividends that that paid were enough to offset the fact that I disappointed Kirsty and the boys for a while. Just after Harry was born, Harry was our first child. So I'm pretty naive about the whole parenting things at this stage. I had a big deadline for my research and I went to work and I came home about four days later. I just worked to get that yeah. done. And I had a few Snickers bars and pretty much not much else in, 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 you know, to support me. And I came home and I remember just falling asleep next to this little tiny baby that was Harry. Yeah, And then I, came out of that slumber and, and I was like, okay, determined to be the good father and the good husband now. And I said to Kirsty, let's, um, let's go somewhere. I can't remember where it was, but, you know, some English country yeah. place. And I said, Harry can wear that outfit that he was given by such and such. And Kirsty just looked at me and said, Warwick, Harry grew out of that weeks ago. And I suddenly realised... Yeah. I, I'm so absent from my children and my, my family's life that whole slabs of growth have gone. Yeah. You know, people talk about the fact that they went to work and they came home and governments had changed. I couldn't care less about that. But the fact that my whole, you know, this, this little baby that was my precious child 
had yeah. grown so much in the time that I'd paid attention that I'd just forgotten that he would even fit this outfit. Another time my children said to Kirsty, mummy, um, when being given the ice cream at dessert, no, mummy, you must serve the guest first. Kirsty and I looked at each other like, who's the guest? Uh, yeah. I was the guest. Yeah. Because they were so not used to me being at home. So I offer those not as I don't, I'm not proud of those 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 stories in a way. I think there's some humour in them just because life is cruel and it's good to laugh at even difficult situations. But yeah, I, I had a, I, I do have a beautiful and understanding wife, and at times I've lent very heavily on that, and I'm grateful that that hasn't hasn't sort of been you know the end of the marriage, but. Um, for some people, that that is a big strain, and not everyone yeah. walked a happy path there. But for Kirsty and myself, we've weathered that. We've maintained a very, very honest relationship with the with each other. We've had some, you know, some hard knocks over the years. Not necessarily around life work balance, but just in in general in life, there have been some hard knocks, and we've had to weather those together. And, you know, being having someone that is really honest to you is very important as a surgeon because you're going to spend a lot of your life in an environment where people aren't necessarily differ, differ, deferential to you. They're not worshipping you or the surgeon, but that yeah. you do get to direct the environment. You've seen that in theatre. The surgeon, not even for all the good reasons, but that they, you are very much surrounded by people who are organising themselves around your activity because your hands on the patient. So it's good to have an environment, a person who they don't have to sort of take you down a peg, they don't have to slap you or anything like that. But just for someone who will be that completely honest with you and say, Warwick, you've got to get more perspective on life because you're saying yes to all these things like it's important. Yeah. But you tell everyone else that your family is important. Would you like to show that to your family? And that, that's a conversation that Kirsty and I have had a lot of a lot of times. And I think that more more latterly, I've perhaps been able to be better at delivering on that. But in those registrar years, that was really hard for me because I always felt a tension between my love of the work and my love of the sort of the, the learning of the craft and the, the more time spent at the table was more time learning. And I love my wife, my children, my wider family, you know, I, I delight in children, and so why would I not delight in my own? Um, and that that was that was really difficult. So I'm not by no means the poster child of work-life balance. In fact, I'm almost the example of someone who who is the forgiven sinner of work-life balance. Yeah, but nonetheless, but, um, I I do appreciate that you shared your story with us, as well as the learning that you got from those days. And this brings us to one of the issues that I was very keen to get your perspective on um, about the challenges of pediatric surgery or even surgery in general. These days, and especially in relation to pediatric surgery, we hear that it is hard and harder um, to get onto the program. Why is that, do you think? Well, I think that there's a finite amount of pediatric surgeons that are required for a population and I don't know what that answer is and I'm not necessarily sure that the current number is like that's the maximum that's not something that I, I don't I don't know the answer to that but I suppose that if there are a finite number of positions being offered by the college then until people exit 
the training scheme, you know, it's one off, one in mostly. Mm, yeah. And so there are times that the ebb and flow of training is such that sometimes there's, you know, a, a moderate number of places available for Australia and New Zealand. And the, and, and sometimes there's there's very little. And, and a few years ago, there was there was no places. There was no position was offered yeah. for, for an entire year. And then the following year, I think only one. In my year, I think there were three that were um, that were we, I was one of three that got in. I'm in fact the only one of those of that cohort to go through training. Um, the other two stepped off of training for different for various reasons. Um, both continued in healthcare, but just in other other specialties or disciplines. Um, and so for a while there, the, the, there was a bit of movement of people exiting the training scheme halfway through. So it sort of created a bit of a swell. And I think that there were more more training positions made in, in, in general. So then everything relaxed a little bit for a few years there, but what was always difficult to get onto and is difficult again for a few years was less difficult. It probably just reset the barometer a little bit on what people expected, but it's always been hard to get into pediatric surgery. Mm -hmm. Why? It's a really great specialty and there are a small number of people able to get in for all of Australia and New Zealand. Yeah. Um, but Having said all of that, I'm, I was just a kid who wanted to be a surgeon. And then I was a slightly older kid, young adult who fell in love with pediatric surgery. And I, I went at it and I went at it and I told everyone, this is what I want to be. And I went away and I said to everyone, I'm going to come back and be a pediatric surgeon. And I didn't will myself into it, but it's, if I can do it, then many people can do it. It's a, it's a, it's an achievable task, but and, and people might say, oh, but Warwick, you gamed it. You know, you went away and you got a PhD and you went and mm. did this. And I would say that was, that was disappointingly of little assistance in getting into pediatric surgery. Uh, I think the fact that I had some clinical experience in pediatric surgery helped me, uh, uh, but no one seemed to pay any attention to my research credentials in the time that I was applying to the point that I, I was expecting at some point to be asked about my PhD, just even in the interest, and no one said a thing about it. So even if it, even if it helped me get into the interview for pediatric surgery, it didn't help me get on. Yeah. Um, and in the, in the interviews nowadays, people are so schooled for interviews. And that's a good thing. You prepare yourself well, you will learn how to present yourself, how to stand, what kind of answers to give. Um, I would say that I went into my interviews relatively ill-prepared, but I, at that stage, somewhat lent on that same fashion of answering that I did when I was asked why I'd ranked all the 12 jobs and not just two or three, because my strategy was not to show that I had exclusive passions, but that I was honest, that I was, you know, passionate about being a surgeon in general and had this additional passion for pediatric surgery. But, you know, when people talk to me about communication, I just sort of spoke from the heart and that yeah, seemed yeah. to carry me across. But I think it is right to be duly diligent in preparing for these interviews and stuff now. Yeah. But I wouldn't let any of this discourage people from wanting to be a pediatric surgeon because you might think, oh, I know five people who want to be a pediatric surgeon, but they're only going to take two for Australia and New Zealand. Mm. Well, Maybe all five of you one day will be pediatric surgeons together. You don't know. So just go on. And the other thing is that if it hadn't worked out, 
there are so many good things to do. Even if you'd say, okay, well, I, I, I want to be a surgeon then, okay, not a pediatric surgeon. There are so many good surgical disciplines. There are so many good medical physician disciplines. So we're spoiled for choice as doctors. Yeah. So, you know, I think just follow your passions, be honest about it. But if it didn't work out, I would hope that very few people despair at that because we're actually blessed to have such great choices. So, you know, I think that's the balance, isn't it? Like go for it hundred yeah. percent. But if you happen to fall short, not because you're not worthy or because you're not good or right or any of those things, but sometimes it doesn't work out, but you are worthy. You are good. You are right. You just need to work out how you're going to apply that perhaps in a different area. So, you know, I would hope that people see the good of both those situations. Yeah, that's a lovely message to hear. And your perspective, um, specifically being in a position where now you are, I suppose, at the top of your field is interesting in this regard, because do you feel that there are aspects of pediatric surgery today that you would want to see evolve, perhaps? Is, is there some change that you feel needs to happen to the field? Yeah, look, I, I, we, we've always got to keep learning and keep improving. So there's so much that can be done to get better, even though we're good. You know, your good can still be better. Mm. Um, I think that there's a there was a great divorce at some point between adult surgery and pediatric surgery. Well, pediatric surgeons really asserted themselves as people who would... Um, you know, we we were we were different. We were we were we had a different skill set. We 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 applied ourselves in a very unique and bespoke way for the nuanced approach to a child, and that were really positive themes. But maybe that pendulum just swung a bit too far. We've now got to go back and say, what did we lose in that time that has been gained in adult surgery? So special so subspecialization has been one one really strong advance and it has some difficulties so you, people become subspecialized so they become perhaps under under sort of experienced in other areas progressively you sort of you you, you fatigue your experience across a more general surgical skill set um, but when we look at what uh, minimal access surgery has done in adults and what robotic surgery is doing we've really struggled to we've brought a lot of that across into pediatric surgery but some of those elements have been brought across quite sort of, um, I think uh, there's more maturity to be gained from that skill set. Um, and it's harder for people who are now training because you, at, a, at one point, people would go into a full adult fellowship. I didn't do that, but they would. Mm. And they would gain that strong adult surgical skill base and then they would come across and apply that. I had a sort of a hybrid model. Now some people are doing less and less adult surgery. So the opportunity to sort of cut your teeth in minimal access surgery, for example, in, in adults is, is less and less. So pediatric surgery has to somehow reconcile that so we can apply these modern technologies which are being championed in adult patient groups into the pediatric surgery group as they appropriately apply. And that's where research and governance comes in because not everything is for the child. Robotic surgery, really challenging as to whether that's for the child. Everything is big. So how do you put that into a small child? But that's where pediatric surgery has to be 
open to, to moving. And there's a lot of legacy and there's, you know, all surgical specialties have ego within them. Not necessarily about individual persons, but just about what does it mean to us to be pediatric surgeons and why are we not adult general surgeons? And there's a lot of sort of identity entwined in that that isn't always helpful, sometimes really, really good, not always helpful. And I think that pediatric surgery has to slightly own up to itself a little bit in that way and drag some more of that learning. I spent a lot of my time in trauma trying to tell people to pay more attention to what adult trauma specialists are doing because we have a lot to learn there. Burns is the same. Pediatric surgery, even neonatal surgery can learn from those other sort of non-age group applicable surgical specialties. So yeah. that's, that's where I'm going to spend the next 20, 20 years trying to be a better pediatric surgeon by being something along the lines of some adult surgeons. Yeah, and by convincing people as you are on this show, you might have a whole legion of people to come and help you do that. Okay. Um, you also mentioned in there your research, which we know you're very passionate about. So in terms of a question about more of your current work, um, what we've gathered is you you're the co-group leader at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute, and your research tends to be focused around duodenal and esophageal atresia, as well as burns right. and trauma. Um, is there anything else in terms of research that keeps you busy these days? What are you passionate about? Yes, I'm really, my, oh, look, I'm passionate about lots of things, aren't I? Yeah. <laughs> um, basic science is fantastic. Basic science is this beautiful world where you can see clarity and you can discover things and you can work within models. And there are these amazing scientists who talk to you about methylation and genetic screening and all sorts of amazing stuff that we only just capture and people maybe you yourself did more biomedical science than I did but you know I'm I'm scrabbling at the edge I'm sort of trying not to drown under their scientific possibilities but I love basic science I love to be you know I don't get into the lab very much these days which is sad because I used to love that environment of dissecting embryos and uh, working with animal models and, and what you see there is so beautiful like the, to look down the microscope at the developing gut is just absolutely exquisite. And surgery is like that, to look at the body and see how it's all put together, that is beautiful. But to see it down a microscope when everything is so tiny, but so, so perfectly formed is just a gorgeous thing. So there's that side of things, basic science. And that's where my duodenal research is looking at the way in which um, a mouse model of duodenal atresia is informing us trying to understand anything about what causes duodenal atresia because very little is known. And we're probably one of only a small number of groups, if not only, maybe we're only the only group paying specific attention to duodenal atresia that is currently publishing. So that's one side of thing. We also have this very expansive research program looking at esophageal atresia and that's work that um, alongside Sebastian King and also a host of collaborating um, neonatal and respiratory and gastrointestinal physicians um, and researchers, we're looking at, and psychologists and behavioral scientists, we're looking at all manner of different things that um, affect children born with esophageal atresia. And then as my clinical uh, passions slide into the world of trauma and burns, you can't help but be engaged in research because that's how you, that's how you, that's part of your learning is to, yeah. to sort of ask 
questions simple and grandiose and, and answer them through research and allow that answering to inform uh, a, an expansion of knowledge and practice. So I do a reasonable amount of burns and trauma research. That's all dry lab stuff. That's collaborating with some really high quality epidemiologists, particularly through Monash University. And that's, and that's another great theme is this idea of, yeah, I'm at the, I'm at, I'm a university of Melbourne sort of title holder. I'm, I'm at, I'm at a Parkville campus hospital with a Parkville campus um, MCRI appointment, but there's awesome people at Monash. There's awesome people at Monash um, University, awesome people at Monash Health. There are great collaborators all over Victoria, all over Australia. And research gives you opportunities to step outside of whatever environment you're in and you love and get into a new world where there are new people to learn and to, and to sort of expand yourself with. And that's a really, you get to meet some great people, you get to meet some pretty kooky people, but you get to meet some <laughs> great people as well. And all of that makes for fun. Amazing. Now, Warwick, we are getting to the tail end of our conversation today. Time does fly. But we did have a couple of reflective questions for you that yeah. I really wanted to hear your thoughts on. The first of which being uh, throughout your story, actually, you've mentioned a few things that you've learned retrospectively. But what are a couple of the lessons you feel at the end of our conversation that you wish you had learned earlier, or perhaps that can help someone else these days? Yeah, uh, there's, there's a lot we could sit and talk about, isn't there? Mm. Um, I think that the, the more you can embrace broadening opportunities in your early medical career, the better. What do I mean by that? That, that I am rapidly uncomfortable as a surgeon in some parts of the body and rapidly uncomfortable in the surgeon with some medical uh, subjects because I, even with my efforts to remain broad in my perspectives, I became narrowed to paediatric surgery and then took a particular interest in some aspects of paediatric surgery. So in your early days, when you're trying hard to drive that impressive CV, my goodness, you guys have got impressive CVs. And you sort of, you, there's all this sort of preparedness for the next stage. It is really easy to sort of typecast yourself into being one specific thing. And you could come away and say, look, Warwick Teague was early wanting to be a doctor, early wanting to be a surgeon, and I'm going to pinpoint my, myself like that and really narrow down. But what, what, I, what you haven't seen so much of is the fact that I was passionate about all the things that I did through medical school, all the things that I did as an intern. And that breadth has helped me a lot. The breadth that comes from being involved in community life, being involved in church life, being involved in, in, in sports clubs, all of those things that broaden you out, they add breadth too. But as clinicians, to spend time doing head and neck surgery and orthopedic surgery and, and a, a little bit of cardiothoracic surgery and Early on, there are opportunities to gain that breadth. Once you make the next step into set training, it is really hard. It's all of a sudden just shump, you're narrowed down. So the, the younger Warwick would say, don't, I cut a few corners. I took a few opportunities. I, I grasped the opportunity to get the research when I did. I stepped out of six months of adult general surgery to take on the research program when I did. There were lots of good things in that. I just got a scholarship to go to University of Oxford. I wasn't gonna turn it down but it had its, took its toll. I, I then got into 
you in, into pediatric surgery and there was another opportunity to just shorten training a little bit more i'd extended my training by doing a phd so i grasped that opportunity maybe the warwick team now would say warwick go back to that year and do two other surgical terms of breadth one in cardiothoracics one in head and neck surgery yeah. and you you'll like it when you get to be 40 46 and that, that that's the thing that i would do now even though I know exactly why I made the choices I did. Yeah. And I think I made good choices, but those choices had consequences. And at the time I had no, I didn't have the hindsight that I have now. I only had the possibilities that I was weighing up. Whereas now I know I could actually go back and do that extra year of adult surgery and it would have been, would have been perfect. Yeah, that's why hindsight is always better. Yeah, but you got to, it's so bloody exciting to live without, yeah. to live in the now, isn't it? So yeah. you, 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 we don't, I don't beat myself up about it, but when mm. you have the opportunity to reflect, you sort of think, yeah, that's what I would do differently. Yeah. But I would, I would still do the same thing. I would still be a slightly tired pediatric surgeon working all hours of day and night, whether it's at work or at home to catch up, because I do absolutely love what I do. That I wouldn't change. Yeah. The, the 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 application to it all but there are some little points at the moment along the way to broaden out who i am and what i do that would have been nice to have just smoothed off some edges with amazing now question number two is are there some things that you do differently in pediatric surgery compared to adult surgery and do they make you a better person well, we play with children every day and i think that has to make you a better person children are so honest they're so they're so straightforward and they smile and they cry and all the things. What else do we do differently? We have a very um, a keen attention to tissue handling as do other surgical specialties, so particularly plastic surgery, for example, but not exclusively that those groups. Um, you know, there are other surgical specialties that have keen uh, tissue handling attention. Um, and we often work in really small patients or really fragile sort of tissue. So it's not just tissue handling, but it's also the size that we're dealing with. Again, not unique to pediatric surgery. Various people work with vein, um, vessel grafts or nerve grafts. So things, but I think there are some neonatal surgery, for example, is an area that just sets pediatric surgery apart with perhaps the exception of some neurosurgical procedures really very few other people are doing neonatal surgery. So that's the sort of, that's why most of us love it because it speaks to our identity of who we are and, and what, we, um, what we do. But I think that really when you take away all that surgical craft mumbo jumbo, what it comes down to is the fact that we get to interact with kids all the time. And some people would think that's a nightmare. I think old people are a nightmare. You know, people like me, okay, people who have all sorts of foibles and, and, and distractions, whereas I love the clarity and the cleanliness of the, of, the, of the pediatric health system, which is the child, which is just yeah. a beautiful thing. Um, and, yeah, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't give that up for the world. Uh, I think that is probably what attracts most, if not all, pediatric surgeons fundamentally to our craft. Is yeah. that to, to, to be with and for children? Yeah, you look around a pediatric center or hospital, you see so many colors, you see so much kindness in the way people talk to each other. It is no wonder. And so now for our last question for today, could you 
think and tell us about someone who's had a significant influence on your career and what did you learn from them? Oh, there are many people. As, there are so um, many people in yeah. the family, outside of the family. Look, someone who impacted me at the end of my end of my training was a Edinburgh-based paediatric surgeon called Fraser Munro. Fraser's um, probably coming towards by his own planning, and I'm not ruling him out here. Um, <laughs> he's probably at more at the end of his surgical career now. Um, but what he taught me was the value of opportunities to learn, if, even if by conversation or by watching, um, by gentle, clear uh, instruction at the operating table, the way to turn a moment of operating into a moment of learning by just talking through what and why are we doing, what would happen if we did this differently. Um, so we could actually be doing one operation and learning about three or four operations he, he taught me about the value of being a little courageous with innovation, but really respectful of legacy. What have we learned from all those years of doing it one way? Let's not throw all of that out. Let's not become cowboy and just say, right, oh, that's all rubbish. We're doing it the new way now. How do you drag what was good from before into what is innovative from the now to build a better future? And Fraser did that without any fanfare, just a really giant gentle, kind person, we would get to the end of a ward round in Edinburgh, we'd go and have a coffee in a coffee shop just down the road, because that's the way things work over there. And we would just talk and he would, we'd just mull on clinical situations. It was this real disciple and teacher relationship, which, um, which I really, really valued. And I was at the top of my training game. I'd done my exams. I, this is my fellowship year. I felt sort of you know, that degree of almost, I mean, not, not impenetrable, but like you, you, you feel really confident at that stage of your career because you haven't had the knocks of the reality of being the consultant who's had to make the tough decision that hasn't all worked out. You're sort of slightly immune from that as the trainee. So that was where I was at. And, and he took all of that and said, yeah, let's, let's use all of that, but let's just, let's just take it down a bit, worry. You know, let's just learn from this moment. And, um, and Fraser had, I, I, I love that guy. I would literally take a bullet for him. And um, I used to call him the general, not, not often to his face. You know how you have nicknames of people. I'm yeah. sure that they're terrible nicknames for me. And most of them would refer to lips and eyebrows, but he was called the general because he was the person who would inspire you to that sense of, you know, how the general stands in front of the army and they say, hold hold and everyone else is itching to go and they want to fire the arrow or run forward with the and the general is there going hold hold and then when the time is right they say right charge yeah and that is what fraser could he could do that but he wouldn't need to there was no yelling he was just calm and he would just say no wait not now this isn't this isn't the time to play that surgical move this isn't the time to show that bravado this is the time to do it and he would balance that so beautifully so yeah. as the young really raring to go about to become consultant surgeon that was just exactly what i needed it, he didn't squash any of my enthusiasm but he did just teach me a better way to apply that as i tipped into the really hard reality of being a consultant and you know i said before that I love the fact that I know who my Dr. Cox is. Mike O'Brien is my Dr. Cox. 
I was his Bambi. And I know for people for whom I might be their Dr. Cox and they are my Bambi. And Fraser will always be my general. And if he told me to hold, I would hold. And when he says to charge, I will charge. And I hope that there are people one day who would say, oh, you know, Warwick T, we used to call him the general. And because however that would reflect, because I just... I would love the fact that I will one day reach the maturity and the sort of the presence that I would inspire that in others. So, yeah, could have talked about my dad, could have talked about my mother, could have talked about my children, but no, Fraser Monroe, a great surgeon and a gentleman, and yeah. he's a good person. So, yeah. I know, fantastic story um, in terms of what we should be looking out for as well in our mentors. Um, so Warwick, we're at the end of our conversation today. We have spoken about so many things and it has been so wonderful to hear your perspectives about them. Um, we're very grateful for your time and contribution today and we want to wish you good luck in your own endeavors. Thanks, Ganesh. And I'm really delighted and I'm really honored that you'd be willing to listen to me muddle on through those answers. So thanks a lot. It was really great. Did that with pleasure. Until next time. Thanks for listening, everyone. We hope you enjoyed the episode. We'd love to hear what you think, so leave us your comments and questions on our Facebook and Twitter pages, at TTO Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and follow us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts to receive your regular dose of the timer. We'd like to thank our sponsors, the Medical Indemnity Protection Society and the Department of Surgery at the University of Melbourne for their continual support. This episode was brought to you by Ganisht, Aidan, Chloe and Noreen, and we'll see you next time.